Hello, we're now on to the, the fourth discussion in our series of HR career journeys with senior HR professionals. Today, we have the pleasure of Sally Cliff joining us for our discussion today. Sally is the global HR business partner at JLL Services based in London. I've known Sally now since the late 1990s where we worked together at Texaco and I was delighted to come and join us on this particular podcast. There was a number of reasons we were keen to get Sally on the podcast that has been different from some of the other people you've heard so far. And, and to give the examples of that was Sally has had a, a really interesting career that covers so many different geographies across the world, from here in the UK to Hong Kong to Kazakhstan to Australia. And we'll share some of those experiences of working within HR within those different geographies. But Sally has also worked in a number of different sectors and businesses, not predominantly in oil and gas, but in banking, commercial, and she's also supported some charities and, and third party sectors as well. So this will give an interesting perspective into the different sectors and how different HR can be in those particular ones. So we look forward to you listening to this conversation with Sally. Hi, good morning, Sally. Good morning, Chris. How thank are you? you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to, to kind of speak today. Sally, I was trying to think when we first met and mm. it kind of dawned on me, it was way back in 1999. How? It was my my <laughs> first ever London trip from work as well, where I think I came down on a Friday, I think it was, and you were the only one who stayed in the office to meet me <laughs> from that side of it there. And I had the pleasure of obviously working with you at uh, Texas for a number of years after but I've stayed in touch since then so yeah. um, it's it's a pleasure to then kind of speak 20x years later on and kind of share your kind of journey with everyone there so first of all again thank you for, for taking the time out welcome so let me start at, at the very beginning there we're all influenced by our parents so if I start there what was it that your parents did um, what was it your parents jobs and careers Certainly my dad had a career, but my dad died when I was two. And so he was in the printing trade, um, but obviously no influence on, on me growing up. My mum worked in offices. She had two small children and, you know, she kind of just had to get by. So she took kind of accounting jobs and, and administrative jobs to um, not always um, consistently, but she just tried to juggle full-time work and kids. How do you think this may have influenced you either personally or even later within your career? I think for me, that sort of, um, I didn't grow up in an ambitious family. People have said to me, they feel that I'm ambitious, but but I certainly didn't grow up in an ambitious family. I think um, that that was something that was sort of just driven by myself. Uh, there was not really any influencing on career at home. And how about yourself as a person? How do you think that kind of influenced you in terms of kind of growing up and, and then progression into the work environment? I guess I kicked against the influences that are around me. I went to an all-girls school and there was, again, no ambition at, at school. We were taught needlework, cooking. There is even a flat in the school I went to where you could practice being a housewife. And there was sort of re really nothing that was driving uh, any women towards a career at school and, and really at home. And I don't think that was anybody's fault. I think that was just the, the time that I grew up in. 
it was a complete revelation to me when I went out into the working world, particularly when I went up to London and suddenly realised no one had mentioned all of these careers at all. So looking back now, is there anything you would say was your biggest influence on on, on you as a person or a career or, or did that all come in the work environment? And no, I think that all came in the working environment, really. My uncle heavily influenced me in terms of sort of getting out into the world, but his career was always in um, hospitality. So um, I, I certainly wasn't feeling like I wanted to follow in that path. So moving forward, you're now seven years old. Um, one of the brilliant um, recruitment campaigns one of my peers did in Subsea 7 in Norway was to to run a campaign of what you want to be when you were seven and what would you plan to grow up be? And we took a number of snapshots of the, the senior managers and what it was when they were seven. And I really like that. But thinking back to seven-year-old yourself, what was it you think you want? What was it you wanted to be at that point looking back on your on career? Well, I'd probably a pop star back then, but I was really into acting and um, things like that. But but really, I don't recall really having any sort of ambitious ambitious and uh, ambition until I was a teenager so there was not really anything that I kind of really wanted to be um, until I wanted to be in the air crew or you know that kind of aviation industry that was that was it for me. So going back, you mentioned, first of all, pop star. Yeah. And I do know your love of music yes. is still <laughs> super huge. So yeah. has that had an influence right the way through? Has that stayed with you? Is there, is there still an aspiration there to, to do that? Or is it just a love of music? Well, do you know, I actually had this conversation last week when I came back from a festival and I was saying to my friends, why I don't work in the in the music industry, I just don't know. I went into HR and my friend turned around and said, why can't you be HR in the music industry? And I said, you know, I never even thought of that. How ridiculous. But yeah, that I think I think that was the missed opportunity for me. I should have I should have definitely gone into the music industry. Well, there's still plenty of time. Yeah, there's there still, is. To be fair, there is loads of companies um in London down there when I yeah. was at um, Hammersmith. There was still even in the building we were in, there was a few. So maybe watch that space because yeah. absolutely combining passions with um, work is, is always yeah. a a kind of kind of winning strategy next question I kind of had and I think in all of my time in HR and meeting all of these students I've never met one person when they were little tell me I want to be an HR professional no. when I grow up <laughs> and um, I'm not entirely sure when people first discovered HR it can be all different times so but for you when was the first time you became aware of personnel or human resources as it may have been known at that point. And and so that was when I went into London, when I started working in the city, I was 19. Um, I went up to the big wide world um, and um, I was working in a bank. Probably about six months I worked on the banking side and then the HR manager approached me about a secretarial job in personnel. And that was, we knew about personnel, but that was the first time I really considered working in personnel. I snapped the job up and it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life because the um, the team that I worked in were are still friends now. We're all we're all still really, really close friends. And it was it was a great first step um, and kind of really I didn't even see that that was the start of my career. Then it, we, we just we just had, had a great working environment. Can you remember what it was about that conversation from the HR manager or what was it about personnel that you suddenly thought, I've got to snap this up? What was it that kind of drew you towards it? 
it was sort of seen as a secret club and curiosity got the better of me, especially in banking. I was working in a team, the boss was was a really hard person. And I don't think anyone was having fun in that team. And so for me, looking across at the people in personnel, they looked like they were having fun. At what point do you recall moving into HR when you thought, actually, I can, I can do more here? I, I think there's maybe something long term for me. Can you recall yeah. what that kind of kind of felt like and how soon that was into into to to that particular role? Yeah, very, very clearly. And this was really, um, I guess, where I I mirror your passion about people's career stories, because um, this happened to me. Um, So I was uh, working in the bank for eight and a half years as a secretary. I loved my boss. We got on really well. I was loyal. I would never have left him. And the company was folded. Everything was wrapped up. We were all made redundant. We had no choice to leave. And so we were all kind of forced back out into the big wide world. And it was sort of really coming out of the days when banking was a job for life. You you kind of didn't really expect to go anywhere or do anything after that and then I went for a couple of interviews and kind of got excited about other jobs and then I went for the interview with Texaco and the one thing that they said to me was we'd like you to do your CIPD and I remember being absolutely floored by that and and coming out of that interview and thinking well me how how is this possible and I suddenly realized um you know, I would have just carried on doing what I was doing. There was no push in the bank. As much as I loved working there, there was absolutely no discussion about career. There was no, there was no sense that you were going to move up the ladder in any way. Um, And loyalty kind of sometimes isn't always positive because that loyalty would have meant that I stayed static in my career. And actually by being forced out into the world, going to Texaco, the one thing I realized was American companies so much more inclusive when it comes to the ability to educate yourself and, and, and move on in your career. And what was it like doing your CUIPD? Did you think twice about going and studying for it? Did you, no. how did you find the studying that goes along with working at the same time, etc.? What was your experience of, of kind of picking up the CIPD? The the one thing that I do always say to people is that you don't have to follow a traditional education route. So I went to university when I was approaching 30 and people find that really astounding um, and my company paid for it as well. So, you know, that that was certainly something that I I think that we don't really fully appreciate um, that you don't always have to have a traditional education path. I didn't hesitate about doing my CIPD, although I I did worry that it was going to be hard and and, and I did find it really hard. Um, I wasn't particularly academic and leaving school, um, I left school when I was 15. So, um, you know, I had been out of the education system for quite a long time by the time I went back in. But I I like learning. I struggle to study, um, (laughs) but I like like learning. And so I learned so much that um, I found really interesting. And looking back on it and then knowing how difficult those exams can be, especially when, when you've got a break. I was fortunate. I kind of did university and then followed and mm. did my postgraduate state away. So I never kind of broke it. And I often thought to myself, I was lucky when you'd see people yeah. having to work really yeah. hard and yeah. then switch their mind to, right, I need to study, I need mm. to do assignments and do that. Were you able to, to manage that balance effectively? Yeah. So so I was really fortunate as well that um, Texaco had the nine-day fortnight scheme and our wonderful 
head of HR, who you'll remember, Celine, she actually was able to give me the opportunity to change the work schedule. So I was able to take Tuesday afternoons off to go to college. And so I did uh, all afternoon and into the evening study every every week. And so it made it a lot easier. I didn't I didn't need to compromise too much. Um, I, I would have had that time out anyway. You talked then going on to do university what uh, what degree was it that you did later and what spurred you on to do that I took the very long route to CIPD because I didn't come out with A levels so I had to do the foundation in college um, and then I finished my CIPD in uni was that the worth the worth the effort the hard there from that center it was I think it gives you a sense of I mean, you know, pride, I guess, it, when when we got the chartered um, status and the IPD moved to CIPD, um, I really did feel like I had a professional qualification and that that m- was very important for me, I think, to be at the table um, and to feel that you, um, you, you know what you're talking about. At what point after, at that point, did you decide, right, I'm going to go as far as I can go in HR did your ambition at that point kick in or very much looking at the opportunities and the experiences that that came towards you rather than seeking them out yep yeah definitely I don't see myself as ambitious um and as I say people say to me they see me as ambitious certainly family and friends who kind of see that I've kind of climbed the greasy pole a little bit but for me it's just about being um open to opportunities Kazakhstan was a really good example where Mexico. We were hiring for a role. I was hiring for that role and desperate for somebody to to, to join. And, and, and then I was asked, would, would I like the role? And I hadn't even given it a second thought. Um, you can't move overseas. So that's crazy. Um, and then I, I thought, well, maybe I can. And really, there was sort of nothing to stop me. And it, and it did feel like a brave, crazy decision at the time. But it taught me so much about the fact that you can go and work in the middle of Kazakhstan and be around great people, great colleagues and you know, br- bring something, um, you know, l- learn something. It, it was a fantastic experience. I want to talk a little bit now about your career journey and in particular some of those things. So I can remember obviously yourself and obviously um, one of your colleagues, Jean, in Kazakhstan. And I used to get a number of the stories from Jean that came back <laughs> around some of the experiences that you had out there. And I mean, I was going to ask you, you've explained really well why you kind of took it. But in terms of an actual role, could you put a little bit of context of what being a in-country HR uh, professional was like within Kazakhstan? The one thing that I really admired was that they had a nationalisation programme. And so basically um, I worked there for two years and I put myself out of the job every six months. So I was able to move roles. So I started as a coordinator and then moved into a business partner and then a a sort of section um, head role. And it was really tough because actually you're moving at quite a pace. Um, uh, You're on shift, off shift. So there's sort of a lack of continuity. Someone's doing your job when you're not there and they do it in a very different way. So after two years, it was it was kind of feeling like a roller coaster ride. Um, but at the same time, I really firmly believe in growing people and allowing people to come up through and and you move out of the way you just you just move on and you move out of the way 
and looking at the kind of rotation you did, if my memory mm-hmm. serves me right, was it a month on, yeah. month off yeah. kind of rotation? What What's that actual experience where you're full on for four weeks in the actual place, but then you have this this kind of four weeks at home away from yeah. work completely in theory to recharge your batteries to go through it? What was that kind of working that rotation like? What what we used to say is I was single at the time and we used to say it was actually harder on single people because I think the people who kind of um, had very established family lives could just go back home and slot back into the family life. Whereas I was in sort of chaos really because I was either either there and working or at home and wondering what to do. Um, and so I travelled a lot. Um, and so it gave me a great opportunity to be able to have proper time to go and travel um, and I think that I already had the travel bug which was why I took the Kazakhstan job in the first place but um, for me I was able to indulge that side but I did find that lack of kind of stability at home quite challenging um, where you kind of don't have roots um, and so you constantly feel like you're living out of a, of a suitcase um, and I think after two years that probably was quite challenging. Yeah, I've, one of my one of my good friends did a similar rotation, and would always describe it to me as the first week was back was readjustment, the last week was re was dread, and then you were back into your, your yes. kind of four weeks <laughs> yeah. kind of kind of thing, and it, it took. It took a while to adjust, but at the same time, two years was exactly the same time scale. That actually, you know what? It's time for something different yeah. because it does take a, a a lot. I think you're right, and it is probably easier if you have a family set that you can adapt back into there. But it, it is weird, and he often used to talk about missing a family, well, wedding, birthdays, and things That's like it. that, which can Christmas, be can be yeah. a hard sacrifice, yeah. especially mm-hmm. at those holiday mm-hmm. periods as well. Yeah, definitely. So after Kazakhstan for you, what was what was your thinking coming out of that? What was it you wanted to do next or or what was the opportunity that, that started to present itself to you? I think I entered the most difficult part of my career when I came out there. Um, uh, Chevron had merged with Texaco. Um, and so I came back to a new company. Um, uh, you know, there was a big shift in upstream moving to Aberdeen. And I, I, I loved the upstream part of the business, working with the geologists and the geophysicists and uh, petrophysicists. That, that was a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and so they left downstream in London, which didn't really float my boat at all. It was petrol stations refining kind of really not what I signed up for um and I came back into a role that I didn't enjoy um at all um and it was as a planning role so I was still in HR but um for me um as much as it was the hardest time of my life um it was the time when I learned the most absolutely 100% and that and that was when I realized I'm a business partner through and through I'm a generalist and that's what I need to do so that was you setting your career in motion yeah. for, for pretty much what has followed since then yeah. in terms of opportunities and roles. That was a pivotal moment, yeah. And what is it about the, and I can relate to this strongly because I've done it right the way through my career, but what was it for you it was it was about the generalist role that you loved so much? What was it about that kind of kind of day-to-day? I, I think I, I just, it sounds crazy because, you know, people say, oh, wanna, I like people and I like working with people. And we say, don't go into HR. <laughs> but um, I, I I think for me, I do really genuinely like helping people. I like the fact that people ring me up and say, hey, how about this? What do you think about this? What can we do um, about this dilemma that we're having? And so that's that's what I really enjoy. 
in terms of some of your future roles, what were the other kind of international experiences you, you subsequently had thereafter? I worked for Chevron for another few years and I saw the opportunity to be made redundant, which was what I wanted to do. I had previously, when I worked at the bank, I had backpacked around Australia and I'd worked in Australia for a number of months. So I kind of, I'm quite brave in terms of going out into the big wide world, as I call it, you know, just kind of um, taking opportunities. So I um, took nine months off. I worked voluntarily. I worked for Samaritans, became a listener, and I worked down at the local category A prison as well, which was quite revealing but you know really just wanted to see a different side of life I wanted to do something completely different and volunteering is wonderful to introduce you to people that you don't come across in your normal work working kind of day so I I worked with a vicar's wife um, when I was working down at the prison and we used to have wonderful chats and then real life kicked in and I needed a job. And that's when I went into the property, commercial property industry as an HR business partner on a client account. That was also fascinating because I, I was working at a bank. I felt I knew banking. I didn't know the property industry, but, you know, again, I, I, I knew how to be a business partner. So I was sort of in my comfort zone to some extent. Did you move out to Hong Kong with that, with that particular role? Or that's was that right. Different- Yes, yeah. So, and what um, was that experience like? So, again, it was another opportunity. We were hiring for a role uh, exactly the same as Kazakhstan. I was desperate for them to hire that role, thinking, please, why can't you find an HR business partner? What's going on? And uh, and then I got a phone call saying, would would you would you like to take the role? And exactly the same reaction. I can't move to Hong Kong. That's crazy. <laughs> Funnily enough, I'd had a conversation with a colleague, and I'd said over a glass of wine uh, my dream location would be Singapore she'd heard Asia and so she'd remembered six months later that um, I'd said I'd like to work in Asia and I thought well not strictly true it had been Singapore but you know let's let's give Hong Kong a, a little bit of thought and it and it turned out that I'm Hong Kong was the easiest place in the world to to live and work it it was fantastic Looking at your career, some fabulous, incredible different types of companies, but also that kind of geographical range to be able to experience those different things. Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk a little bit as well about was your kind of your kind of successful HR leaders, your role models, etc. And I know we hear a couple from yeah. Texaco days. Celine, who you mentioned, was just a fabulous kind of HR leader. Yeah. Uh, for me, one of the people I always talk about that left a huge impact, even though I barely met her, was Janet Stoner, who was right. previous was ops and maintenance or mm-hmm. operations, but also in HR. And mm. everyone talked about her in such a, a positive way. It made you realize to be an HR leader, you have to be more than just a specialist. Yeah. Um, there, you have to be able to connect out. But in terms of your role models, mm. who, who were the people that really influenced you and what was it about them that inspired you to try and be like them or be similar towards them? Yeah, I mean, uh, reflecting on Celine, I think she's taught me the biggest lesson any HR leaders ever taught me, uh, where you'd go with a problem and you'd say, can I ask you about this? And she taught me very early on that that, that was not the approach um, and that you go with a solution and you check the solution. And it used to be really hard. And I do remember that, like, that, that agonizing over I need to go and talk to Celine but I need to think it through myself and um, it was like going into a really hard exam but actually what she taught me was you come up with a solution don't don't you know use her brain and I do this with my managers now or I say don't 
make me use my brain. You use your brain and, and then we'll check in. But don't make me do the thinking for you because that's, that's, not, that's not how you want the solution to go. I think it's, I mean, that's a, for me, that's just such a brilliant piece of advice and a brilliant kind of learning to do because even as a manager, I've seen me just wanting to give my solution and the person coming in with the problem. And then you suddenly realize the person knows the answer anyway and probably better than you and is closer to the situation. So it's always the, the check is here, right? What do you think? What do you, what do you think we should do? And, um, and then make them just to see if they do it rather than, as you say, just the, oh, well, tell me the answer and I'll go and implement it. And then we'll complain about it because somebody else has told you. Absolutely. It, so. it wasn't, it wasn't their idea and they feel forced to do it. Well, no, you, no one's forcing you. What about in the international arena? Was there any specific people that you looked up to that that, that really helped you embed and embrace those roles? Yes, definitely. My um, my HR lead in Australia, she worked in Sydney and I was obviously based in Hong Kong. She was absolutely fantastic because she was the first leader that I really observed the leadership team listening to. She really had influence over senior leaders' decisions and, and it was so powerful. And then I really observe, actually, there's a lot of HR leaders who don't have influence over the senior leadership team. Um, and the senior leadership team tend to tell HR what they want rather than HR saying, well, I, I think this is a better direction or let me influence your thinking around this. So she was really powerful. And I do remember there was one incident as well at Chevron where um, the senior leadership team wanted to remove the nine-day fortnight. And everyone was sort of in panic about this because we were thinking this is such a great benefit for employees. It's such a retention tool. And it, and it kind of felt like a lazy, lazy response to cost save. Um, and this HR leader said to them, absolutely fine. Um, give me all your numbers and all your calculations on how it saves money and I'll review it. The most powerful thing she could have done because they didn't have the numbers. They couldn't come up with anything that quantified their thought process and, and it didn't go anywhere. And, and that taught me a lot as well about kind of just um, asking for evidence, asking for things to be validated before you make your considered response. It's funny. I'm going to share a personal one there because we had exactly the same challenge in a company I was in I'm not going to name them um there but it was the same thing we'd we'd just implemented the 90 fortnight right across our business and suddenly our head office which was in a different location decided no we're not going to do this and we yeah. came back and challenged it well what's the reason what's the rationale and we tried to present a case that was well show us the kind of kind of benefit for for yeah. doing that and the, the dictate that came back, which was part of the culture in that company was, well, if our clients think we can do our work in nine days rather than 10, they'll only ask yeah. for nine days pay. And yeah. that was, that was the end of the conversation. And we yeah. were, we were asked to remove it. Yeah. Um, fast forward a year later, we were part of a management buyout and it was reintroduced because we saw the advantage of it. And yeah. that's, I think that's. These are two great examples where if eight people listen to HR, we can yeah. make a huge difference on the business for something that may be meaningless or, or appear meaningless or just feel like an easy decision. And it makes such a huge difference when we're at the table having those discussions. I, I agree. Can, can make a huge difference. And I think in terms of leaders who influence me, I guess there's leaders who don't influence me and that's they're the ones who haven't got the ear of the business and they haven't worked on how do they get 
to the table and how do they get listened to um, and for me that's absolutely critical as an HR partner anywhere is, is to be invited to be at the table and to be listened to. Yeah, there's only so many times you can hit your head against the wall before yeah. you decide I, I need to go somewhere else before I hurt You've got myself. The marks, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, but that takes me nicely on to my kind of next question. If I was going to ask you what it is to be a successful HR business partner, what would you say that those those skills are for, for any aspiring HR professional? Well, I think we've covered a lot of it. For me, it's listening. Um, one thing that Samaritan's work taught me um, was listening. And it was really incredible, the training that you go through as a Samaritan to learn the art of listening. We all think we're really good listeners. And then suddenly you get taught how to listen and to stay quiet. And I, I think that was a really powerful tool that I've taken forward in my career. Um, and I ask my leaders all the time, are you listening? And very often they'll say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But secretly, they know that they're not actually listening, they're responding. And so I think, um, you know, listening is really important. I think actually um, asking people to do the thinking and not and not just coming up with solutions is, is also really powerful. And we talked about influencing. So actually being able to have the grown up debate with people where perhaps you don't always agree. People say, oh, S Sally said no to this. And I said, no. I'll never say no. If it's illegal, I might say no. <laughs> I may say no if it's illegal. I probably will say no if it's illegal. But I will never say no. If my manager really wants to do something and they're convicted, then, then by all means, go ahead. And, and you will deal with the consequences and I will help you to understand the consequences of the decision making that you're that you're doing. And if I have no influence over that manager and they forge ahead and it's a mistake, then we all need to learn a lesson from that. Yeah, it's one of the hardest things, I think, about being a business partner is is where does the advice and the business partnering stop and yeah. where does the tell come in? Because once you start to tell, then you, you, they don't come to you back. Yeah. They, they're not interested. So it's yeah. finding that typical balance spot. In my experience of HR, I always use the analogy is it's if you've got a vase sitting on the edge of a table, it's far easier to catch it before it falls than yeah. repair it when it's in a thousand pieces. So um, trying yep. to say, come to me first, no matter yep. how difficult it is, that's yep. that's the most important. But I absolutely agree with what you said. Those those skills are absolutely there. It's not the technical knowledge that makes the difference. It's often the, the behavioral holes that makes the it makes a really mm. good business partner mm. and a good leader. So one of the next questions I had as we kind of come to the end of kind of kind of kind of our kind of discussion today was I recently at an RGU, um, sorry, Royal Garden University presentation, one of the students came up to me and kind of left me with a bombshell question. And he said, well, well, what is it you plan to do with the rest of your career? And I kind of stopped in my tracks. I said, what do you mean the rest of my career? I said, well, well, I was hoping to retire about kind of 50. So I'm wondering what your plans are <laughs> to do when you're kind of there. And I'd never even contemplated that. And I'm like, I've still got 15 to 20 years in my head left to do that but it did start making me think around okay what is it I want to do we have a defined mm. time in our career how do we want to make the most of it so what have you thought about the rest of your career are you very much following the same path which you've been on since the start of yours 
Uh, yeah, I, I, I call it a slow controlled fall. Um, so um, I, I don't have a definite plan. I, interestingly, I've never wanted my boss's job, which I guess I see as the uh, ambitious part of, of, of what people observe. I, I, I don't feel like I'm ambitious. But, but I guess if I think about ambition, then it is just to work in a nice environment where I work for people and with people that I really enjoy working with. Um, I enjoy being a business partner. Um, and so I don't see a material change in the kind of roles that I take, but I can see uh, the, the business partnering role is changing. Um and one of the things I find less motivating is just that delivery of products that we kind of fall into as HR, where you're kind of much less of a, of a generalist, uh, jack of all trades. And that real fo- heavy focus on specialism, I think, squeezes the business partner role. And that. Uh, so I, I think for me, probably my moves in job will be to work in organizations where there's a bit more of, of of expanse of the generalist role rather than the very narrow product delivery. I think that's always the challenge whenever you work in a particularly large global organizations, you have the, the, the HR life cycle, which means you have so many tasks that become quarter driven. So whether it's chasing up annual appraisals or whether it's salary reviews or whether it's bonus processing, there's, there's a high level of administration. And I think I must have passed that wisdom on to many people who've come into HR to say, it's not just the nice stuff. You will always be an administrator, even the most senior people that I've worked are often the administrators for the executive teams, et cetera, for there and record those things. So you, you never quite lose that. But where the job really does get interesting is, is the ability to contribute to business decisions, to be involved in the discussions and being able to, to see what's happened and be able to contribute to it. And, and some companies and managers are brilliant at doing that. Sometimes you've got to fight to get that seat and be involved in, in some of those those things, or sometimes they're just scared you're going to tell them no. So they um, We'll, we'll do it first and apologize later so um um there but i absolutely agree it's it's for me it's why i've always been a generalist that you never quite know what what what's coming the next day it can be a curse sometimes as a blessing but at least it, it gives you that variety um and sitting closely with uh, my most rewarding times have been sitting in leadership teams where you've had an influence and you can see i, I was part of that we just had a strategic leadership meeting last week. All of our global leaders came into town, and 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 I and I love it because you know you you're able to find out what the direction of the business is going in, and then adapt your HR strategy to how are we going to deliver all of this. And I feel like that's that's the only value I'm ever going to add to the business is being able to guide the leaders to make good decisions when they're setting strategy around how does it impact their people. One of the things I always say to people coming into HR, you never quite know what you're going to get in there. And there's been numerous situations that I have found myself in that sometimes my friends don't believe me. Um, Sometimes I don't believe myself. I'm in the middle of these situations. And sometimes I have no clue how you try and get out of the situations. You kind of of find you in there. There's possibly a book there somewhere, or certainly a TV show, uh, which is probably not that far removed from the office. But I think people would sometimes call it too far-fetched. But personally, for yourself, Sally, can you think of two work scenarios you found yourself in where you can't quite believe you were involved in these and how you got yourself out of them? I really struggled with this question because 
I can't I can't think of ones that have happened specifically to me, but there's 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 a famous one that um, some colleagues talk about, um, which I wasn't involved in the investigation, thank goodness, but um, uh, was was somebody who was stealing shoes um, and going around the office taking one shoe from under the desk, um, and they were apprehended leaving the office one night with a bag, and um, security just curiously thought, why is this person leaving late at night with a bag? We'll have just checked the bag, and the bag was full of shoes, <laughs> individual shoes, and after checking this person's locker, I think they had something like 40 individual shoes, and, and we were all wondering, what, why has no one reported shoes <laughs> going missing? And I thought, people probably just thought the cleaners had just been over vigorous and just kind of clean cleaning things up but that was a really strange investigation and my heart went out to my colleague who had to deal with that one yeah I can imagine some of the questioning of the person and the curiousnesses of the rationale here even now I want to probe and find out what what, what was the motivation here but tell yes. me more about that yeah so, <laughs> so that, that's definitely one and I think you know just the other ones I think when we get into difficult conversations with employees and you're in the room and you never quite know how people are going to react I've been in situations where people have been so few seriously angry that you know that they are boiling with rage and sitting across from someone who's boiling with rage at everything and at you at everyone is 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 quite something you kind of get quite shaken I, I also remember one where um I was actually unfortunately making a, a man redundant and he and he sobbed and he he absolutely sobbed and I wanted to cry and, and of course you can't. Um, and so you're standing there watching someone whose life is falling apart. And I think you never quite get ready for that. Um, you, you're never quite prepared for that human reaction to things. Um, and I've also had people who've said, can I have my check now? <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> Thank you. You've made my life. You know, I can, I can go and do what I want to do and and also then you come out of meetings with huge relief thinking oh I was really prepared for a difficult discussion and and it was the easiest thing in the world so I, I think for me that's kind of that just twists and turns of humans where you you, you never quite know before you speak to somebody exactly how it's going to go. Yeah I can relate to that I've prepared for a number of conversations where I was expecting a full-born tornado to come and hit you and, and the person was the complete opposite and then I've prepared for ones where I'm thinking yeah I'll be there and the reaction was completely different from 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 what I've I've been expecting and, and I think probably the other one that comes to mind we t- actually talked about this um with one of the other kind of kind of speakers as well around these difficult kind of conversations is um here as I can remember being in a senior management redundancy conversation and the manager sitting next to me with years and years of experience broke down and the person who was being made redundant was the one who was um, comforting. Uh, comforting the manager who, who yeah. really just couldn't deal with the fact that he was letting somebody from his team go that he'd worked for kind of 20 years and that yeah. in itself was again that was just something you thought mm. uh, okay um, how do you handle this and you know, effectively you take over and make sure that the process kind of kind of runs yeah. through uh, there so you never I think that's the hard bit of the job you never never know you prepare for everything and then yep. if hopefully it goes better than you kind of think but sometimes 
as as you kind of explained, you just never quite know what that conversation is is going to go and, and in which direction, which is one of the the challenges and is also one of the things where good HR people are able to to to, to manage those and, and become deal with it. You know, I've I've actually had the really unfortunate um, opportunity, shall we say, of 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 having um, friends be made redundant, and I always feel like. I would rather be there to to know that it's done with kindness and compassion. Um, and I think for me, that's kind of how um, I, I approach things. I'd rather be there to make sure that it, it it's done in 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 the correct way with with kindness, than than to run the opposite direction and try to avoid it. And I think as well, what some people don't appreciate, and we talked about this in the other conversation, is often we we don't know our own fate sometimes when these yeah. conversations nope. are happening. You really so don't. you're either mm. you're either dealing with anxiety or uncertainty because you don't know if your role is going to be effective. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can be at the front of the queue and told, or we can be at the end of the queue and yeah. told. And um, that in itself is, I think people sometimes just don't see that when 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 the HR person is having to go through that side. Of Especially when it's a kind of large restructuring process where everybody's yeah. included in it, and it's it, it's it's difficult. But I've also seen some HR people be made redundant, but their professionalism states, "Well, no, I will I will go through yeah. this and I'll manage it and I'll do it," which yep, I always completely. find incredibly impression of uh, incredibly professional, and again tells you a lot about the HR people. But yeah, those difficult conversations and and some of the yeah. surprising ones can be the ones that that that, that kind of leave the lasting imprint. Um, on all of us from that side of it. Sally, I would like to thank you for taking the time to come and speak. You have given everyone here a fantastic insight into your background, your career, the path you took, the international direction you took, which is incredibly inspiring, fantastic, getting up to go to different parts of the world and different countries and different cultures, but at the same time progressing. And and I know you you don't see yourself as ambitious, but I certainly see yourself as successful. And what you've been able to do and been able to progress throughout your career has been kind of inspiring. And I think there's a great story here for people to look at just to see one of the themes that will come out of this, this, this kind of podcast is there is no one direction. There are so many different paths and routes you can take, which is why we all like HR so much. And you can specialise or you can generalise and you can choose any manner of locations or companies and stuff as well. And the potential is kind of endless, which I think is why we all kind of like HR at the end of the day. I, I agree. I saw I saw um, some advice once, which actually really resonated with me. It was about um, actually seeing the opportunities and, and, and consciously knowing whether you pass on the opportunity or whether you accept the opportunity. And I think some of the opportunities that came my way, perhaps I could have not even seen, I could have ignored. But I'm trying to be conscious when I see an opportunity coming my way and, and, and make a, a thoughtful decision. I think it's one of the themes that come up a lot. Opportunities can be difficult, but they're good things. It means you have choices and you're not staying in the same place and staying stagnant. So sometimes they can cause you a lot of anxiety and and thought Mm. processes and making you think, but ultimately they've given you something that you are potential that you might have. So I want to admire... A person we both know told me that very young stage is don't be don't be scared of opportunities. Yeah. They're only good things yeah. at the end of the day. And, yeah. and it's down to you what you choose to take or make out of them. Exactly. Yeah, we have a choice. Yeah, absolutely. So, thank you again, again, Sally, for taking Thanks, part. Chris, and it's great been an absolute you. pleasure. See you soon. Cheers. Bye. 
Thank you for listening. I think you can all agree that Sally's experience is super interesting, the countries that she's worked in, some of the industries is there, and indeed what comes across incredibly strongly there is she's unbelievably modest about her achievements within um, the HR side of it there. So delighted you could listen. If you want to find more, you'll get your podcasts from the usual places. And in our next discussion, we're going to have a conversation with Kim Woolner. <laughs>